Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the movie review podcast where, I don't know, we talk about Morbius. We're, we morb a lot. Morbin we're just everywhere. We're morbin everywhere. Uh, every, yeah. <laughs> right, this is a podcast. Anyway, my name is William Bibiani. I'm a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is uh, Whitney Morbius Seibold, and everybody calls me Morbius. That's right. Uh, and uh, here at the Critically we're, we're, Acclaimed podcast, we're going to be reviewing the new releases uh, what do you call it? Morbius. Morbius. Uh, also, Apollo 10 and a Half, A Space Age Childhood, a new animated film from director Richard Linklater, uh, a new film called Nitrom, is that how it's pronounced? Nitrom. Nitrom. And The Bubble. The Bubble. The Bubble. The Bubble. All of these are films. What do you want to talk about first? I think we should talk about the Morbius in the room. <laughs> more, you want to talk about more Morbius? Being over there. Um, okay, I, I thought that uh, you know, like Marvel is now just making shows and movies out of whatever they got left at this mm-hmm. point. Yeah. Like all all of the A list stars were claimed before Disney took over. So like Fantastic Four, Spider Man, X Men, those were always already movies. Yeah. Uh, Although they will be redoing a lot of those yeah, because but, like uh, some of them are run by different people. So uh, Disney will reboot. Paramount those, picked yeah. up what was at the time kind of a C list character in Iron Man. Uh, and made him one of the biggest stars of all time. Yes. Uh, Captain America was always the comic read by, like, the kids we made fun of. <laughs> like, we're, hey. we're, we're busy reading X-Men. Those are the cool comics. You re- if, you read, if you read Thor or Captain America, we made fun Let of you. Let me explain something. Uh, when, when we had our magazine drives at my elementary school, uh, there were only two comic books available to buy for subscriptions. Uh, Amazing Spider-Man uh, and Captain America. Those are the only two. I don't know why, but those are the I, only I two. Didn't, I didn't know anybody who was like really passionate about Thor or Captain America, but ah. you turn them into movies and people like those characters. They're fun. So um, uh, now all of the Avengers have come and gone. Uh, we've had some characters that had a little bit of cultural clout finally get their movies like Black Panther. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we had completely obscure characters like the guardians of the galaxy kind of get their mm-hmm. own movie. And now they're really popular too. Yeah. To the mainstream, uh, those characters were pretty much unknown. So yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, we finally shaken our way down to Morbius well, and, and Moon Knight too, but we're, we're not talking about Moon Knight. Moon Knight is a TV show. We're not covering that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Moon Knight is technically Marvel studios. Uh, Morbius is technically Sony. And for those who mm-hmm. uh, may not know the difference real quick here, uh, Sony owns the rights to uh, make movies about Spider-Man and the various characters that are considered the Spider-Man characters. Yeah, so, for example, Doctor Octopus is not generally considered a Captain America villain; he's a mm-hmm. Spider-Man villain. So Doctor Octopus a, came a, with the package, yeah. uh, and so much all, like all of those, yeah. uh, all the villains that Spider-Man is yeah. known for fighting is mm-hmm. are part of Sony's deal, and, and Morbius is one of those villains, and his supporting mm-hmm. protagonist cast as well, uh, like, like Black Cat and yeah. Silver Sable. There's, yeah. there's a bunch of supporting characters. So, in and, Spider-Man and to be fair, Spider-Man has a pretty sizable supporting cast of it, it characters is, and villains. It, it's about to play 100 with. characters. There's yeah, a lot to play it, around. There's with. a lot to play around, to be fair. Uh, but they, the problem is that Sony has those characters, and they eventually, like about five years ago or so, they reached an agreement with Marvel to let Marvel integrate Spider-Man into the Marvel Cinematic Universe, mm-hmm. but Sony still keeps the character and they take, yeah. make the majority of the money off of them. So, so Sony and, uh, and Disney are... Both raking in money for the movies that uh, the Tom Holland version of Spider-Man appears in. Exactly. Uh, so Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, that's exclusively Sony. They get all of that. And uh, they're starting to try to... 
do something they wanted to do when the Amazing Spider-Man movies were coming out, mm-hmm. which was try to build kind of their own little expansive superhero universe. Now, yeah, the Amazing Spider-Man movies basically tanked, to, uh, so they couldn't do that. Yeah, they were going to build up to the Sinister Six, which is something yeah. they kind of cut to the chase with with the last Spider-Man movie, all live action, where the three Spider-Mans mm-hmm. all got together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and there they, was actually they, only they five. Of, but There yeah. were only five, but it, rather than take a long time to set up those characters, they just scooped them up from older movies and crammed mm-hmm. them in the same movie. And then, yeah. you know, there you go. You got your Sinister yeah. Six, but it was fine. But now that there's all this mm-hmm. goodwill and now that Spider-Man's been kind of integrated into the Marvel Cinematic Universe proper, now that they've introduced the idea that the multiverse exists and that if you're in that multiverse, you're canon... <laughs> you know, it doesn't matter if you'll never meet uh, Captain America, you do exist in the same multiverse as him, which technically, uh, literally everything does, so do you. Right. Whoever you are listening to this, you're in the same multiverse as Captain America, you're canon. Um, but in any case, they've got their own characters, and they're making their own movies with them, with pretty nebulous connections to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. They're still Marvel superhero characters, still Marvel superhero movies. But they're not Marvel Studios movies, which brings us to Morbius. Morbius started off as a Spider-Man villain. Mm. Uh, He was, like many Spider-Man villains, a scientist who got a little too big for his britches, did an experiment, whoopsie-daisies, now I'm a monster. Yeah, Yeah, it happened to uh, Dr. Octopus, it happened to Electro, no, I think it was a criminal, but regardless, there was an experiment gone awry, and now I'm a supervillain. Morbius turned into the science equivalent of a vampire. No supernatural powers, but he needs to drink blood to survive, he's he's, uh, not very, uh, he doesn't do well in sunlight, uh, uh, that kind of thing. They, they called him Morbius the Living Vampire. That yeah, because he's not was, undead. Yeah, he's he's not the living undead, He's guy. a living vampire. Uh, in fact, he is uh, part human, part vampire bat. That's that's his origin story. Basically, He, he yeah. splices his genes with a vampire bat, gets bat-like powers, yeah. and one of those is he needs to drink blood. Initially, he was a Spider-Man uh, villain. Eventually, in the 90s, Marvel started turning most of their like big popular villains into anti-heroes. Characters like Venom and he, Sabretooth, he ended up and Morbius was part up. of that. Morbius ended up teaming up with sort of the Ghost Rider end of the universe, and yeah. you know, Blade and the Darkhold. Yeah, those and all are the, supernatural-type you know, creatures. The kind of d- demonic end yeah. of, uh, of Marvel. Um... In the 90s, he looked like the crow. That's kind of the yeah, look they were going with. It was goth. Sort of like this, yeah, b- black leather goth outfit and big tattered cape. Honestly, it wasn't that far removed from no, his look. No. It basically, in the 70s, he looks like the Christopher Lee Dracula. And in the 90s, he looked more like the crow. Fine. Yeah, Whatever. Uh, I, I was a big fan of Morbius when I was like 14 or so. I would never call and myself that, a big I, fan, but I mm, liked the character fine. Well, that, that whole demonic corner was something I was yeah. kind of paying attention to. There's a... Uh, there's an interesting bit of trivia when they did the uh, 1990s animated Spider-Man cartoon, which really popularized Spider-Man for a lot of people in our generation. It wasn't a great cartoon, but it was really expansive and they introduced a lot of the characters. Uh, th- because it was a kid's show, they thought like having an actual vampire running around biting people and drinking their blood was a bit much. Mm. So instead they did something creepier, which is give him lamprey mouths yeah, it, in his hands. Little, little, little suckers like the uh, salt vampire from Star Trek. Yeah, which is I always thought was way creepier and they could never and they couldn't say i need to drink blood that was like a little too demonic so they they just said i need to drink plasma guess where plasma is is. it's in your blood it's in your blood but yeah they just couldn't say like i need plasma to survive no you need blood Uh, yeah like be honest with yourself now we got proud of who you are now we got a feature film jared leto plays dr michael morbius who's suffering from an unnamed blood ailment yeah mysterious made-up disease something about clotting although they're not really clear about exactly what it is uh he has been living with this disease this chronic disease his whole life he needs blood transfusions every day 
Yeah. And uh, he has been researching to cure himself and his childhood friend, who suffers from the same ailment, uh, from this disease his whole life. His childhood so, friend is played by Matt Smith from Doctor Who. Yeah. Uh, to the point where he wins a Nobel, excuse me, a Nobel Prize. Yeah, it's a Nobel Prize, but they call it the Nobel Prize. And it's not like... It never and they say seemed, it twice. Yeah, so yeah. It's, it's it's not like it's it doesn't seem like it's like in the Batman 1960s series where they would like rename famous things just yeah, to make like like, like L- London became Londinium that kind yeah, of thing. like that kind of thing just to make it seem like it wasn't like the real world. It really does seem like no one in the film knew how to pronounce the Nobel Prize, which is weird. I wasn't sure if Nobel like had a copyright and he needed to license the name. I wouldn't. I wouldn't think he would. He was going to win a Nobel uh, Prize for something that's important later, which is he had invented uh, synthetic blood. Yes, which for, actually, for transfusions. which actually, and yeah. oftentimes you'll see a movie where someone's come up with a fake invention and it's not a very good idea or it's kind mm-hmm. of stupid. That would be a very useful invention. Yeah, absolutely. That would be an incredible invention. And, uh, he deserves the Nobel Prize for that. Sorry, to, the Nobel Prize. And to distinguish the uh, the synthetic blood is like this milky blue substance. It yeah. doesn't look like blood. Yeah. It looks like a, a, a melted milkshake or something. Yeah. Something you get at Cold Stone Creamery. Uh. He figures out that uh, vampire bats have a special uh, quality, clotting agent. Anti-clotting agent, yeah. So, um, but he knows that doing human tests is illegal, so he goes out on a ship into international waters. Yes, right right where the money plane is. (laughs) It's flying, (laughs) sailing beneath the money plane. Kelsey Grammer is somewhere taking bets on Michael Morbius (laughs) being able to splice his (laughs) DNA with a bat. Uh, He he gets uh, the injections and turns into, like right away, turns into a vampire. Living vampire. Kills all all the mercenaries they had hired to protect a boat in the middle of nowhere. Gun-toting mercenaries who are just sort of with machine guns. Why are they grass. gun-toting mercenaries? Because otherwise, we might feel guilty mm-hmm. if he killed them. There's actually uh, like that. a line. It's like, oh, those are all bad guys anyway. I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, cool. This is what we're doing. We're just going to pretend yeah. that's fine. Okay. Uh, he also discovers that when he drinks blood, not only is he cured of his disease, but he has superpowers. He's super strong. He has mm-hmm. echolocation powers. Yeah. Uh, he occasionally goes all monster uh, face. He, he doesn't have echolocation powers. He has bat radar, or as scientists would call it, <laughs> sonar. sonar. <laughs> Jesus, Morbius, and, come on. Uh, no wonder he didn't win the Nobel Prize. Morbius' powers are very ill-defined, and th- yeah. it's, it's kind of a pet peeve of mine when they don't define, like, the parameters of a, a superhero's well, superpowers. It's interesting because he tries to. Like, he does that whole thing that, like, I people can, in I movies can jump do. And, yeah, you know, like, people rec- in, he's talking into a recorder people about have, the things he can do. You yeah. always see people talking into a recorder in movies. You never see people listening back. Occasionally you do. Yeah, and almost never. It's yeah. really uncommon. And so like he's talking to a recorder and he's basically saying, Okay, so I have advanced I have superhuman strength and speed, cool. I have bat radar. Mm, sonar. Sonar. Uh, and he talks about how uh, he can drink synthetic blood and it sates his thirst, but it doesn't sate it for very long, and every time he does that, it doesn't sate his thirst for like it, it, it basically works for less amount of time. Yeah, each it, each time he takes yeah. it, like the, the but, span before he needs more is But shorter human and blood is great. What he never suggests for one second is not human blood. Yeah, vampire bats aren't that discerning. It doesn't have yeah. the, and but he says get, it get needs to, to be, a butcher, get a cow. He says it needs to be human blood. He, but, we don't see him test but, that. Yeah, he's, he he's very meticulous about all this stuff. We never see him test um, that. So yeah, he can also like in order to demonstrate that superhuman things are going on, the film makes this really ugly visual decision to have like a bunch of like wisps of CGI smoke yeah. floating off his body. And that's not, I, I think that was just supposed to be a visual indicator. I don't I, think he's actually leaving smoke. He, he doesn't room. seem to be because what happens is 
it's not like if it was just him, his his biological self doing that, mm. it, we wouldn't get it off of his clothes. And every time he changes, there's a bit where he's arrested in the movie and they put him in an orange jumpsuit, mm. and the clothes give off this like bright orange yeah. streak on screen, which is like no, so that can't that's got to be a stylistic. And, effect. and if if it looked cool, I'd be okay with it sure being like non reality. That's fine, but it doesn't look cool. It no. looks like just CGI mess. Yeah, it looks not um, honestly. There's a lot of CGI yeah, mess. More, in this yeah, movie. more his, the CGI faces is kind yeah. of a problem. Just. Hire a makeup artist and give him it's, a monster it's makeup. It's makeup. vampire makeup. makeup. Come on, you get, get yourself uh, that Oscar. They're, they're they're cleaving to the look of the character in the comics, and the character in the comics has no nose. It's kind of like he has a bat nose. Okay, well, we can do uh, that so, with makeup. They did it with uh, Ray Fiennes and uh, Harry Potter. Yeah, just for God's do, sake. do some CGI to maybe erase his nose, but do yeah. the rest as as a, you know just makeup. Fine. Uh, he can also his echolocation is such that he can stand on a rooftop and just like pinpoint a single voice out mm-hmm. of like somewhere in this whole city. Well, I guess his, his uh, hearing would be really good. He's got those yeah. pointy ears. Pointy ears. I mean, uh, you got to use them, he's got right? Little CGI ridges in his ears yeah. now. Uh, and also, and this is truly bizarre, he can somehow like he has wind powers as well. Like he oh, can yeah. float on gusts of wind. Yeah. You know, bats can do that just because they drink blood. It's and not because they have and wings. And he doesn't say anything like I my when I turn into this vampire, like my bones hollow out and suddenly I'm super light and I can just sort of leap and Which would make float. some sense. And maybe yeah. if you were and wearing has, something billowy has, yeah, it could work. Yeah, there's like a parachute or something and he can float yeah. a lot more easily. Nothing like that. He just sort no. of floats around. Yeah. There's a scene where he leaps in not behind, but in front of uh, an oncoming subway train and uh-huh. kind of flies around in front of it. Which I'm not sure yeah. that's how that would work. Uh, I'm I'm complaining about these details because the film is crap in engaging you otherwise. Well there's not much going on. Basically yeah. the the plot is really really simple he's been a long time saying i'm gonna cure this disease i'm gonna do it with bad stuff here's how i'm gonna do it with bad stuff no i will not answer any of your reasonable questions about how i'm gonna do that with bad stuff uh and then i'm gonna do it oh no i'm a vampire it sucks and then matt smith is just like well can i be a vampire too and jared leto's like no it sucks and he's yeah. like well i wanna and so he does and while jared leto is trying not to drink blood matt smith is like fuck it i'm gonna and yeah, then they yeah. fight a couple there's, of times, and that's kind of the whole movie, and then it ends. There's, there's no, nothing, nothing to it, really. There's no, there's there's no meat on the it, bone, and, ironically, and, you know? Yeah, the, the idea that Morbius doesn't want to eat people, doesn't feel like uh, there's any, any tension there, there's no, no reason explaining why Matt Smith decides that he really wants to start killing people. Yeah, we never... Uh, we, we don't see... This is, this is, this the, is the actual like development of the characters. You, you, when you're having a, a film like this and you have uh, uh, two characters with a very similar uh, origins and power sets, hmm. uh, you need to see where the divide is. You need to see like what what happened that made this person turn out morally good, yeah, and which person this person turned out morally questionable or bad. Uh, for example, um, I don't know Superman and General Zod. Okay. In Superman 2. Same superpowers. They come from the same planet. Uh, but General Zod was raised in a very militaristic uh, uh, fashion, and he was, became a fascist. Mm-hmm. Whereas Superman became a public servant. They turned into different people. Uh, Matt Smith, there's there's stuff to play with here. He's rich. In fact, he's funding Jared Leto's research. But we never see him, other than like one scene where kids are bullying him and he tries like hitting them with his crutches, mm-hmm. we never see him like... Actually, like, take pleasure in hurting someone. Which you would think, like, because of, like, maybe by virtue of growing up rich and maybe alienated from uh, certain elements of humanity, 
maybe you could do that. Maybe you could say he's just one of those people who is rich and looks down on not rich people. Or, or, or he's so rich that he's you know, learned that he can get away with anything. Yeah, so that would have been yeah. fine, too. Like, And it's implied, like, listen, I can get you international waters. I can get you mercenaries. And I'm like, cool. Is that the thing you normally do? Because that raises a lot of questions about where you're getting your money and maybe mm. we could explore that a little bit and say like here's someone who is working to be a pub- a good Samaritan who wants to actually heal the sick and here's someone who is only funding that research for their own personal gain not that that's not sympathetic but that's the only reason you're doing it not through any altruism yeah we could have played with that but instead it's just Matt Smith takes the stuff off camera Starts killing people, yeah, he, and he then that's kinda, it. He, he just, doesn't really do. We don't really see him. Yeah, there, there, yeah. there's a lot that happens off camera in a way that really feels like they were hampered by a low budget or they didn't get the scene, or there's they just a, cut stuff for ta- weird reasons. Yeah, talking about the the Nobel Prize again. Yeah. Uh, there's a scene early on where uh, Doctor Michael Morbius, pre-vampire, is mm. going up to accept his award, and he walks his way up to the podium, uh-huh. and then there's a hard cut to him back in New York after the ceremony, uh-huh. just doing his job, just doing yeah, back healing a kid, whatever. And, and uh, they talk about you're in a lot of trouble for saying the things you did at the Nobel ceremony. Nobel ceremony. Nobel ceremony. Uh, but we and, did. But we didn't see what it was or what he said or why. It's just sort of, it feels like they just sort of took information away for no reason. Yeah, it's really awkward. Just the whole movie is structured in a really, really awkward way. There's a lot of like little scenes that make sense in most movies, but don't hear because they never laid the groundwork. For example, uh, Michael Morbius has an assistant. She becomes a love interest, but frankly, the character doesn't have a lot going on. She becomes a love interest for no reason. Yeah, basically because they, they she's end, there. Um, end up kissing just because that's the like, movie told them a, a, to. A moment that yeah, where that would happen. There's in that kind of basically movie. they're cops who are after Michael Morbius because they think he's a murderer. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, they're played by Tyrese Gibson and uh, what's the name of the, the comedy guy who's uh, who's his. Uh, oh, I, I don't remember that actor. Uh, there's another actor who's uh, who's with Tyrese Gibson, and. Um, so they're they're trailing this woman because they think maybe she'll lead them to Morbius, and so she ends up. <laughs> this is the weirdest thing, man. She runs. She okay. So she well, realizes. Well, let, she, let me look up that actor because please you're, you're going to describe something. I'm about um, to describe it. I'm going to describe another scene in this movie. Which uh, Al, Al, Al Madrigal is. The, Al Madrigal, yeah, normally a very very funny guy. I'm a I'm a big mm-hmm. fan of Al Madrigal actually. Uh, not big enough that I remembered his name. I apologize, but I like Al Madrigal a lot. Um, in any case, so they're following her, and she knows she's being followed. She figures this out. And so she decides to give him the slip. And so she's like walking away from her apartment and she like runs into a bodega and she runs behind the bodega and she makes like a couple of weird turns, sits through an alleyway Mm -hmm. and then loses them by just randomly hopping on a bus. A good way to lose somebody. Good way to lose somebody. And then who's on the bus but Michael Morbius. How did he know she'd be on that bus? I I think the implication was he like used his powers to sneak on and was following her. But again, that's off camera. We never see that. Normally how a scene like that works when like you're trying to visit somebody... Uh, and you're worried you're under surveillance, is you know their routine. Yeah. A good example is in a superhero movie is uh, The Incredible Hulk with Ed Norton, and uh, he wants to see his ex-girlfriend played by Liv Tyler. He knows that she she's still living in the town where they had a relationship, and he knows she has a favorite pizza place. Mm. So he's hanging out around there, knowing eventually she'll order a pizza from there, because I guess she does that like once a week or something like that. Yeah. So he knows she'll be around eventually. Okay, it's logical. I I'm willing to buy that, but just like so, I knew that you would try to give these guys a slip and run these exact weird blocks at this exact time on this bus route. So I got on the bus at the previous stop, knowing you would what? But that's not the most illogical thing that happens in the movie. And there's a lot. Mm. The most illogical thing that happens in this movie. It's not a big thing. 
but it is a thing that I will never forget until the day I die. And again, I want to point out that if it sounds like we're nitpicking, it's because the movie didn't give us enough things to distract us from these yeah, nitpicks. It's really remember, not a lot to this. Remember movie. a lot of the details that we're talking about. Like uh-huh. I, I already said that those weird CGI wisps coming yeah. off a body. If yeah. if that was just a cool looking effect that they added just to make it look cool in the movie, and, and, it, cool. and it actually looked cool, I would have no problem with that. If that was the it's, if this was even the only problem with the movie, uh-huh. that would be fun. Oh, what bliss! Uh-huh. One weird effect <laughs> that we don't particularly care for. Who cares? Like this would be great. That, things like that don't ruin a movie. Right. I just I want to make that very no, clear. But they become the only thing you can latch on to when the narrative isn't strong enough to give you anything to pay attention to otherwise. They really swallow you up either because you're emotionally invested or so taken away by how stylish or action-packed or cool it is or how great the stunts are or whatever. If you're just there just looking for something, anything to connect to, and then the only things it has are things that make no sense. Mm. So, there's a scene where Tyrese Gibson and Al Madrigal or in the apartment of Morbius's assistant. Morbius's assistant has uh, ditched their apartment in order to go work with Morbius. Fine. How do Tyrese Gibson and Al Madrigal realize that she has left? Well, they go inside her apartment, and then they see a litter box in the hallway. First off, that's not where you keep a litter box. That's gross. That's going to be a problem. That's not the biggest problem. It's a New York apartment. It could be really, really tiny. It's not really, really. It's a movie New York apartment. It is not that. It's not huge. She's a famous doctor. She's doing fine. Sorry. But anyway, that's not my point. El Madrigal picks up the litter box. No, he doesn't pick it up. He leans down. Well, he he grabs it. He He grabs it it on either side and he shakes (laughs) it. He shakes it. And he makes a little... Whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. Mm. Like if you were shaking a bag of cat treats or dog treats. But it's the litter box. But it's the litter box. So he's shaking the litter box. Whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. And he looks around and he says, the cat's gone. As if shaking the litter pan would summon a cat. Well, but, and then next he stands <coughs> up and says, if the cat's gone, she's gone. And then we cut to her with the cat to prove that Al Magical knew what he was talking about. Mm. Nobody Nobody First off summoning a cat is a 50-50 proposition Under even the best circumstances Even if you're shaking it like treats That's no guarantee the cat will come There's no guarantee And trust me my my cat Luca loves treats Hmm. (laughs) 60-40 60-40 right now He'll show up I don't know a single human being And I am Begging you to write into this podcast. If this is, if this is something you've actually done to summon your cat. Oh, I can't find the cat anywhere. I will shake the litter box in order to make them go, hmm, my poop. I should go investigate. Meow, meow, meow. I'm going to go check that out. <laughs> what? Somebody, somebody's shaking my litter box. Some fun's going no on. No one shakes the litter box to summon a cat. That's how divorced this movie is from reality. Not, And I realize it's a vampire movie, but you still want to ground it in some kind of recognizable reality. You still want the things people to do to be the sort of things you can sympathize with. Oh, yeah. A real person would do that. A lot of things in this movie are things a real person would not do. And then on top of everything, you've got, like, action sequences that are... There's one action sequence in a subway. Uh, Matt Smith has been chasing Jared Leto around. Ah, I'm gonna kill you. Ah, Jared he's, Leto's he's like... He's vampired, and they're yeah. both vampired. And then... There's one scene where they're on the subway platform, and the scene's like 30, 45 seconds long. That's how long it feels, anyway. 
the entirety of the scene is Matt Smith running towards the camera in slow-mo. Uh-huh. Then we cut to Jared Leto looking at Matt Smith running towards him in slow-mo. Then we cut back to Matt Smith running towards him in slow-mo for a bit. Mm. Then we cut back to Jared Leto looking at Matt Smith going, oh, he's still in slow-mo. And then we cut back to Matt Smith in slow-mo. Now, in theory, what we're supposed to be doing is seeing that there's a subway coming behind Matt Smith. We figured that out a long time ago. We're just seeing the same shot. And he doesn't even look menacing. He's looking like, oh, I found my summer play date in the park. We're going to go <laughs> well, they, play polo. They, they did give him sort of the, the vampire face in that scene. Yeah, so it's but like it charging up monster. But he's but not it, scary. It's, 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 it's a ridiculous shot. It's this wide, flat angle, and it's yeah. all evenly lit. It doesn't look scary. No, and, it's yeah, absurd. And, uh, yeah, uh, uh, we were talking about that scene after we saw the movie and how it it, it was evocative of uh, Lancelot coming over the ridge and uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Yeah, there's like two guards in Holy Grail and they see Man- Lancelot coming over the ridge and we cut back to the guards and we see Lancelot still coming over the same well, ridge and, and sometimes he's same, further away. Yeah, it's, it's like this almost the same shot each time and one he's like even further and yeah. there's like this tense drum music going yeah. on. And then eventually uh, Lancelot just covers the last 90% of the distance Ooh. off camera real and just, fast and just stabs him. Like he's him. still in the distance the next cut he's right at the doorway stabbing guys. Yeah, brilliant, uh, brilliant editing gag. Yeah, brilliant editing gag. That's kind of what they're doing here, but there's no gag. It would have been funny if it was a gag. It's like he's all the way there. He's all the way there, and all, and then he's right next to Morbius. Yeah, uh, yeah, would have been, would have loved been, that. Uh, this film could have used a little levity. They, they yeah. try to do jokes, but they don't really land. Uh, I, I can't think of any offhand. There was a joke that, uh, and this was an alteration from the ad. Oh uh, yeah, saying, there's, um, there's, there's a bit where uh, Morbius needs a lab, uh-huh. and he decides to infiltrate the lab of some. Uh, counterfeit printers. Which, as we all know, the machines you use to counterfeit money is the exact uh, machines you need to do hematology. I I think... More importantly, he needed a place that you know a criminal could hide out, and this place was already where criminals were hiding out. So pretty thin, but okay. He says he's saying he needs a lab, not a space. Whatever. Oh yeah, but he, he takes over their space by turning vampire, and they like, say ah. he, he breaks the guy's arms. Like, who are you? And he says, "I'm Venom." Isn't that cute? Because Venom is another yeah. movie in the Sony. And they reference it here, like, "Oh, we haven't had like a weird kind of super crime like this since that Venom guy in San Francisco." Yeah, so yeah. it's it's a thing, yeah. and uh, and then in in the ads, he like turned back normally said no i'm just kidding it's dr michael morbius at your service like introduces himself yeah like, like a little bit of uh you know a little bit self-effacing I, yeah, here, yeah kind yeah, of yeah, undercutting yeah gotcha that just kidding line was cut from the final film he so just says i'm venom and he scares a guy off and that's it yeah which is which sort is of not weird, a gag which is yeah it's like wait a minute he's not venom mm-hmm. we in the audience know he's not venom it's weird that he'd say that. It would There's been, no follow-up on that. It would have been, been funny if the cops had been uh, like, oh, Venom's in town. Oh, we're in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah well, if, but they don't do that. Or if he had said, I'm Batman, because he is technically a Batman. That would be funny. That would have been a little... At least there's like... A joke in there. We've established, I mean, this is in the MCU proper, but we've established that DC Comics exist mm-hmm. in other superhero stories because yeah, they mentioned in Eternals, spoiled. they said Superman. They mentioned Superman. Like Icarus they, inspired Superman in there Eternals. There we go. Um, there was uh, yeah. a line in uh, one of the Spider Man movies. Yeah, where you're, you're working, says, uh, you're, you're not working, Superman. You're not yeah. Superman. It's like, yeah. well, I'm actually Spider Man. That's not the MCU, but it's in the multiverse. So, like, whatever. Mm-hmm. The point is that mm-hmm. DC Comics do exist as a fictional thing in the Marvel multiverse. So, Batman would have been funny. Maybe they tried and couldn't get couldn't get that okayed. Maybe I don't know. Yeah. And then I'm not going to go into any detail about it. There are some post credit scenes. They make no sense. They make at no, all, and they're just as badly edited as the rest of the movie. And yeah. there's a lot of weird, cheaty angles and stuff. And it's like where... promising future movies, and I'm like, but I don't want them like this. <laughs> this is I'm not... well. What what I appreciate here, okay, is um, 
you look at however many movies there are in the Avengers series, the MCU. There's, the there's, 20s, there's like 25 movies. Something now. like that, yeah. There's a lot of movies, for, especially in the, the amount of time we've gotten them. Yeah, in about 10 years, we got over like 20-something movies. Yeah, and, that's and, a lot. And, and several TV shows besides. And then you got Venom and stuff, which is arguably yeah. connected. So, so it's, all, it's all these things, are, yeah, it's a lot, a lot to take yeah. in. And uh, they have been really good about that sort of marketing savvy, where mm-hmm. it's, we're going to show you the movie, but then we're going to cut in in the middle of the credits... And we're going to show you essentially like a preview for the next one. Yeah, some kind little, of teaser. A little, little test. Yeah. A little taste. Stick around. Yeah, uh, you know? Make I, sure you don't miss the next one, yeah, even if it's not the same character. A cameo from a new character, a cameo from an old character. You know, some kind of uh, yeah. little tease as to what's going to come next. And uh, now I've I've heard like some people who ordinarily would leave during the credits now stay through the credits of every movie. Yeah, uh, just, just in case. Because they've been sort of trained to sort of wait for which something. Is, which is fine. Which is fine. I, I, I just like to sit through the credits because it's good cool off period uh, i like to see all the interesting names that people have well the names where it was shot uh they're on the soundtrack that's all in the credits i keep trying to figure mm. out there's a song in morbius that like matt smith kind of works out to mm. where it's just i forget it's like, it's like something um, something have sex yeah. <laughs> something <laughs> something it's like a have th- sex it's like the one moment where it gets like a little bit fun and weird but uh it's but not, not a lot but he's not even doing anything yeah. he's just kind of doing some sit-ups he's, he's, and looking at himself he's kind of putting a shirt but, on I just, but this this weird have sex song i just i can't figure out i didn't unfortunately when i was looking at the credits i didn't pick up the name of the song uh, it's not on imdb yet or anything like that so <laughs> i don't know what the hell this damn song is uh, it, it'll but it'll emerge i'm sure i'll find it eventually but, uh, anyway, yeah. but what i find fascinating is um how how well the MCU has managed to uh, sort of drop in those little teasers, yeah, and how people are getting excited about that. Mm-hmm. They know how to they know how to stoke yeah. the fire. Uh, curiously, Morbius is doing ostensibly the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. There's Theoretically, a, there's a, a new character that they're teasing, yeah, and uh, there's sort of a, a brief interaction between yeah. that character and Morbius, a, a suggestion of yeah. more to come, more yeah, and, and yeah, a little, and it goes off on like a, that sort of foreshadowing line. Yeah. Like, I want you to join the yeah, we're gonna, Spider-Man. We're, we're going to join the thing, and then yeah. yeah, cut to black. Yeah, like like uh, at the end of Iron Man, for example. Yeah. Uh, why is it easy to get excited about that kind of thing when? Kevin Feige is doing it over in the Avengers series, mm-hmm. and why does it fail here? And uh, it turns out there is an art to that, isn't yeah. there? Uh, and it's marketing, but oh, there's yeah. there's a bit of an art, and uh, it's is. kind of fascinating to watch Morbius go through all of the usual superhero beats this late in the game, mm-hmm. after 15 straight years of this genre just sort of dominating the box office, mm-hmm. and kind of pissing it down their legs so hard. I know. It's kind of amazing that something like this can still be this bad. It's yeah. almost interesting. <laughs> it's interesting how uninteresting <laughs> to how, this to is. To see how uninteresting it, it has yeah. emerged. It, and it, a big complaint about those Avengers movies is that they're all, they, they feel a little bit of a, too much of a piece. Yeah, which was, which they're, is by yeah. design. They needed them all to feel in the same universe, but yeah, there comes, and, but there's a downside to that is they that all the, feel a little the, similar. Yeah, the yeah. story structures are all the same. Doomsday monster, yeah. death, doomsday widget, somebody's mm-hmm. gonna destroy the world. Good, good yeah. guys have to gather to stop them by using violence. Same That's tone kind of where thing, things yeah. get kind of serious and then we brush it off with a joke all the time kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, a lot of the characters are really kind of the same. A lot of quippy, uh, you know, outsider they're, types. They're, they're plenty competent movies. They're just good, yeah. big, shiny, glittery objects that are, you, yeah. know, a, a, you know, confections that are fun to consume every once in a while. Yeah, it's like a big birthday uh, cake. Like, yeah, I, I wouldn't mind having cake a few times yeah, you, a year. you go to you know? a couple birthday parties yeah, yeah. and you have a big cake. And, yeah. Uh, Couldn't it, have it every day. It's, it's, but not, like, you it's know. not good cake. It's just like a sheet cake you got from Target. But, but that's delicious. I'll take that. It's full yeah, of sugar. I'll, I'll have a big need. old sheet cake once once or twice a year. Mm-hmm. You know, that kind of thing. 
it, yes. <laughs> uh, Morbius is, uh, well, I'm trying to tie that cake metaphor back in. It's okay, there's uh, a lot of dead air. I was yeah, like, oh, trying to fill it with no, something. Mor- Morbius is, uh, the movie Morbius is trying to, like, sort of recreate the sheet cake from a photograph. <laughs> <laughs> I know and, of and made, sheet like, cake. It's like, well, I have some. It's like, it's like Bender trying to make a sheet cake. Yeah. <laughs> I understand the concept of a sheet cake, well, but I don't see, actually I, have the taste. I have this square slab of clay and a lot of frosting, so I'm going to make that into a cake. And it looks like the cake and it feels like a cake, but they don't know the ingredients. Yeah. And, and they uh, don't know. They don't know really how it's supposed to work. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It just so it's. Just... I'm not saying that this is sort of like a clueless misfire. I think it's just a badly made movie. No, it's 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 badly. It's frustrating because it should be, in its structure, it should have that same kind of almost universal monster kind of origin story thing that a lot of Marvel superhero stories have, mm-hmm. where uh, there's a certain element of I wanted to do the right thing, then there was an element of tragedy. Yeah. And I got transformed, and now I am a tragic figure who is, on one hand, very cool, mm-hmm. but on the other hand, very much an outsider now. Uh, and uh, I am a victim of my own hubris or my own whatever. Morbius has that. Morbius has that. It's not a very original take on that because it's basically just a mad scientist slash vampire. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, there's no reason why that story couldn't work. That's where that story well, it, worked constantly. Yeah, consider you know? if if a more uh, the, the director of this film is named um, Daniel Espinosa. Des, da, Daniel Espinosa. And yeah, he also did Safe House. Uh, Perfectly Daniel, competent film. If uh, a really like aggressively stylish filmmaker had mm-hmm. made something like this, someone like a like a Tim Burton. You needed instance. a horror filmmaker. Yeah, I think. yeah that's or, what or, that's what you need. You don't. You want an action movie filmmaker. You want a horror filmmaker who understands the poetry mm-hmm. behind. Oh, let's be honest, a not very complicated character, but you need someone who appreciates there's a little bit of poetry here. There's a little bit of poetry you know? and there's a little bit of horror, and I feel yeah. like there's no poetry and the horror isn't almost not scary. Yeah, the horror is almost non-existent. Mm-hmm. It's it's really frustrating because that's the hard. He's a vampire. Mm-hmm. Like a vampire movie. Like that's we haven't had a vampire movie yet. We've had tons of mad scientist movies. We haven't had like since Blade. We haven't had like a vampire Superhero horror movie. movie. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, Underworld, but that's not the same thing. Like we're talking about uh, in, yeah, the, yeah, in these comic book universes. Underworld count. Underworld counts. That's a comic book universe. Un- it's it's not from a comic book, but it's got that vibe. Yeah. Anyway, my point is this. within the Marvel slash DC universe, we really haven't had a vampire mm-hmm. in live action in this universe yet. This is a new thing. It's an old thing, but we haven't introduced it in this way yet. Mm-hmm. And they didn't introduce it in a way that actually made it seem like I am excited to see more of this in the future. Mm-hmm. They introduced it in the most banal action movie way possible, rather than actually capturing anything about the character that makes it distinct, yeah, this is, which this would is be a, its horrifying element. This is a... About as good as a lot of those underworld movies. And again, I'm not a fan of those movies. I, I think I think Rise of the Lycans has like at least they like really own their like There's Romeo and Juliet one, right? kind. Of, yeah, it's no. the prequel. It's the one. It's all about um, Rona Mitra and uh, Michael Sheen. He's a vampire. Uh, he's a werewolf. She's a vampire, and uh, they fell in love when they wasn't supposed to be, and mm. she dies, and he starts a vampire revolution. And uh, it's okay. It's okay because the story is simple enough and has an emotional crux, which a lot of the other ones don't. Um, here, the story is simple. There's not much of an emotional crux, though, because it's all just kind of thrown away. Yeah. There's something to be said here. I think they're trying to suggest something about ableism, but they don't have a very cohesive concept about that. We don't mm-hmm. really see Matt Smith's character lashing out against people who were cruel to him because of his disability earlier, because of his uh, health issues. Mm-hmm. That might have made more sense. That would have really justified um, his turn to the dark side, if you will. Uh, instead, it just feels really random. Um, it's a shoddily put together 
by the numbers film. And even like those last bits, like in the post credit scenes, there's no like, oh, this is exciting for the future because at its best, not every Marvel co- uh, post credit scene is equal, but at its best, they understand that it's got to feel portentous. Even if the audience doesn't know what's going on or who that is or what mm. that sword is at the end of Eternals, it feels like a big deal. Oh, shit. They're they're filming it in such a way that there's portent to it. Like, oh, shit, this is really important for later. Like, ooh, okay, cool, Mm -hmm. all right. Here this is, um, and then this happened, and we're not going to explain it, and then this one guy is going to show up over here, and they're going to suggest, like, we'll do something again later, but we won't know what or why or why that's cool or why that's significant or even tease that we're building up. Like, it's just perfunctory. Mm Mm-hmm. It's might as well just have someone at the end say, "Hey, you want to?" Do-? It's like at the end of uh, National Lampoon's Loaded Weapon One, and Emilio <laughs> Estevez and Samuel L. Jackson—they're mismatched cops. They finally come together and solve the crime together at the end of the movie. Very funny film, by the way. Um, and at the end, the commissioner just says, "Hey, you guys are good together. I'm going to keep you two as partners." And then Emilio Estevez and Samuel L. Jackson look at each other in the eyes and say, "Sequel." Yeah. That's as perfunctory as this is, but with no humor to it. Um, Morbius. It sucks, and I realize yeah, that I sounds mean, like a like a gag, but it just does. It's, it's just it's, not a very. It's, it's a just plain bad movie. It's yeah. and then I know the tendency mm. for a movie of this profile and of this genre yeah. uh, is going to attract a lot of rancor from a certain segment of the internet, mm-hmm. and uh, people are going to dogpile on it. Yeah. When a bad superhero movie comes along, it becomes notorious regardless. Especially if it's a bad superhero movie that like people can actually agree on. Because you and I sometimes don't like... A, like, you and I weren't very high on The Batman. Most yeah. people were. We're in the kind of minority on that. Yeah, but when but, like, uh, a movie comes on like The Green Lantern or yeah, something. Yeah, Green which, Lantern. Which is or, clearly or, doing something wrong. You like, know? Or Catwoman, uh, yeah. the Halle Berry film. Uh, yeah, those things, they're they're put on a list. They're yeah. they're now, like, they're notorious. They're the bad ones. They're the yeah. ones we get to mock. For and about 20 years, and then everyone says they were always good. Like, like there's, there's yeah, all these people who say Batman of... and Robin was always good. No, I'm like, no, no. I appreciate it's... that you want to like it because it's kind of going for camp, and camp Batman is fun. It's not good camp. No, it's actually quite badly made. It's, actually it's, it's difficult to sit through. It's really kind of a dull film. It's frustrating, it's just yeah. visually ugly. I want um, to like it. I want to, I would love to have a nice, fun camp Batman, but just, there's good crazy and there's bad crazy yeah. and, and uh, Batman and Robin is bad yeah. uh, figuring so out what the director was going for is for, not the same as saying they did it well for the next week there's going to be a big argument as to no Morbius is good actually no Morbius is bad actually mm-hmm. after that uh, the uh, the comics are going to lap the, the comedians that is are going to lap this up oh yeah uh, it's, the, the it's going to be trailers, the, yeah, the, the cinema corner, sins, yeah, all the, the, that corner the pitch of, meetings. There's going to be a lot of them. There's going to be a lot of those, and they're all going to dig into all of the mistakes. Mm. Uh, people are going to agree on what the the worst sins are. They're mm. going to agree on the mistakes, and it's going to be one of the worst things ever made for the longest time. Mm. Uh, it's, it's not. not it's just kind of. It's not worth that kind of rancor. It's, it's just not. a bad movie. I'm not saying yeah. I'm not defending it as good. I'm just saying that it is merely bad rather than a fiasco because a fiasco yeah. is fascinating a fiasco is interesting uh, you know you want to see how the hell this happened yeah. it's why it's i felt bad actually when i posted my initial tweet mm. just say oh the embargo's up here so i thought about morbius it's not a full review just thoughts mm. one of the things i pointed out was that weird cat litter scene mm. and i kind of regret doing that because it suggested that the whole movie was weird and it's yeah. like, no, it's not. It's just bad. This it's is just, just like the that, one, this weird one little scene. weird moment. This is the only go. completely, like, not just, like, not well-advised or not smart or not good or kind of stupid, but, like, legitimately, like, 
what were you thinking moment hmm. in the movie. And so we're like, oh, that sounds great. I want to see it. Like, no, 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 no. It's not interesting bad. When I, it's just bad. It's just bad. Like the Venom movies, especially the first Venom, I think it's a good example here. Hmm. The first Venom is very poorly written. The plot is terrible. The dialogue <laughs> is mostly not good. Sometimes it's weird, but like mostly it's just not good. But it's got a kind of a strange premise, and it yeah. has a few actors who are really committed. Like, Tom Hardy is doing the work. Mm. He is trying his best to make that character interesting. And yeah, and the premise is at least weird, unlike Morbius, where it's kind of universal horror conventional. Uh, so Venom 1 is kind of entertaining to watch, despite how kind of workmanlike and drab... From the most of it is. Mm. I think Venom Car- Let There Be Carnage is wonderfully weird, even <laughs> though there's a lot of really shoddy writing in it. Yeah, but uh, I, I think the writing is just as shoddy in the second yeah. one, but I think they were able to roll with it a little bit. I think they harder. understood the I think they understood the, the, the queer themes of it better and they mm. foregrounded them and that really yeah. really made it easier to get through some of the parts that aren't as good. But regardless, like if there's something that is like bad or just kind of conventional, but there's like some Element that you can grab onto throughout the entire thing. One completely awesome performance in a not very good movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, one really wacky idea in an otherwise very conventional movie. One really awesome series of stunt set pieces in an otherwise rather bland action movie. Yeah, that's that can be enough. Morbius has none of that. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't no, have I... the thing to make it stand out. It's actually just this absolutely generic piece of nothing. And I'm done talking about it. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, just don't don't believe the hype is is yeah. my point. Uh, yeah. this, this is not <laughs> this is not the horrendous thing you think it is. It is no. merely a bad movie. Yeah, it's not it's not uh, it's not skip that it, fun. Don't bad, see no. it. It's not fun to see. Well, we're not gonna tell you not to see. You you can do whatever you want, but I, like I obviously, so, but we don't no, recommend it. I don't recommend we, you this, go see this it. This isn't I the kind of bad you need to rush out to see. In if our uh, if you have some time to kill. Uh-huh. Uh, see the new Richard Linklater movie instead. There you go. There's a new <laughs> Richard Linklater movie. It's out on Netflix. It is called Apollo Ten and a Half, A Space Age Childhood. It is made like all of Richard Linklater's animated films in a rotoscoped uh, uh, so, format, where they film... A- actors are filmed and then they animate over the, yeah. the actors. Now, Richard Linklater has used this to very kind of bizarre effects, uh, in particular for uh, A Scanner Darkly, which is sort of mm. a sci-fi story. He's used this to very dreamlike uh, ex- extent in the film Waking Life. Um, here, it feels like he's mostly using it to save money on production design, because but, it really which... does give you a lot of freedom. Uh, which is fine uh, yeah, because I'm not it all, to it. it's it's a nostalgia piece. Uh, yeah. The and I think using the animation is a good way to highlight sort of how far away it is in the past and how yeah. kind of dreamlike it all seems when you're remembering it. And in fact, the whole film eventually comes to revolve around what is maybe a false memory, yeah. uh, but it's about a ten year old boy. Mm-hmm. Uh, clearly a stand-in for Richard Linklater, yeah. who is growing up in uh, Houston, like mm-hmm. just outside of Houston, a little suburb mm-hmm. in the late 60s. And this and, is a suburb where everyone who lives yeah, there works for NASA. It's a company town, and the company is NASA. Yeah, his so dad does like paper-pushing stuff, just in terms of like, shipping. Yeah, he handles and, like, uh, shipping at NASA. And, you know... He understands that's not a very cool job, but, uh, you know, his mom has put it to him. Well, you know, everybody does a little bit of something. And yeah, no, someone no, has to do Somebody that has to do that. So, so, so he's dad, kind of yeah. a little bit proud of his dad. Yeah. His mom and his dad are just sort of paranoid suburbanites. Mm. Uh, they're not... Com- they have a home, but uh, they're not well off, which is kind of the way you could live uh, in 
in certain yeah. suburbs in this country in the late 1960s. Yeah, you, you, you pinch your pennies where you um, can. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. Um, they don't. They mention that. They, once. they mention it once. They, Only and, uh, once. And they though. talk about yeah. sort of seeing a lot of unrest about uh, the Vietnam War on TV, but it's yeah. just a TV because, show to but, him. Yeah, because they're rich. Because and and to his parents, I think as well. They're rich. Not rich. They're they're reasonably affable suburbanites mm. who are living uh, completely in isolation yeah. from non-white people. Uh, from people who are significantly poorer than them, mm. from people who are really have other values than them. So anytime they see someone with like long hair, they're like hippie, stay away from them. Yeah, like that well, kind of thing. There's, there's, a, there's, there's just a, a cute, general xenophobia. There's a, yeah, there's a cute bit where they're driving through town and there's somebody wearing bell bottoms and it's like, hey mom, is that one a hippie? And she's and uh, she says no, his hair's not long enough. Mm. And then they say, well, he's wearing bell bottoms. Oh, well then yeah. yeah, that's a hippie. Yeah, and then and you'll notice in that scene she leans over and locks her car door. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, so it, it is about this very, um, I guess it's about sort of early, the early Gen X experience, the childhood Gen X experience. I, and uh, I think mm. a lot of uh, his memories kind of bled into Gen X culture. And he's talking about a lot of this movie is devoted to just sort of like the TV he was watching, the music he was listening to. Yeah, this is this is narrated uh, by Jack Black. He plays the older version of the character. And mm. I really do think this is more of a boomer film, really, because, you know, the whole thing is he was like the first kid in his family born in the 60s. That's not quite yeah. Gen X. Uh, but like, yeah, I guess he was born in... He's a late boomer. Yeah. Um, but uh, a lot of this movie, like a lot, in fact, the vast majority of this movie, has the general impact of uh, you asked your dad what it was like to live in the 60s and he mm. rambled on for like an hour and a half. Yeah. Now, it might, maybe it's interesting... But it's still basically like, oh yeah, we had the best TV at the time. Yeah. Yeah, well, we had we had the Twilight Zone, which I call the Scary Eyeball Show because I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And then we had like, you know, you, you could like ride in the back of a truck going ninety miles an hour, and nobody gave a crap. Mm-hmm. And sometimes there's, the there's icicles a... were so cold they cut your tongue, like yeah. that kind of. Thing. That's that's most of the movie. That's it's just, remembering it, stuff. It, it really is just the movie, and there is a bit of a through line here where uh, near the beginning of the film. This main character is called into a separate room from his school by these two NASA guys. And these two NASA guys sit him down and say, well, look, we built the lunar lander that we're going to send to the moon a little bit too small. We need a smart kid who's good at math to fly to the moon, land and test it before we send adults adults. there. Yeah. And the best dialogue in the movie is when the kid says, how did you make it too small? And they have to say, like, okay, are you good at math? Yeah. yeah. Do you get 100 on every test? <laughs> no. Well, well, there okay. you go. <laughs> We're NASA and we messed up. And honestly, and that, uh, as weird and as silly as that sounds, uh, we all remember actually, when they sent a rover to Mars and they didn't, they used like the metric system on some of it and the whatever the regular system, like foots or whatever. like Imperial system. Imperial yeah. system uh, for, for other parts. And as a result, it broke down. That's exactly, they t- would totally do that. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> Just, so they're actually, People are stupid even in, at NASA. In the middle of all of his sort of, uh, you know, nostalgic rambling, and, and I use rambling in a positive way uh there's also scenes of him training in nasa and actually getting in the like rocket ship and shooting off to the moon uh and you know you're not really sure is this real is this a Mm. fantasy and clearly it's like a little bit of both after after a while we realize that it's not real but it is to him yeah uh in the same way a lot of his childhood memories are uh yeah it's it's like it's like if you like uh you you ask your dad mm. to tell you a story about something like, yeah. oh, what, t- Dad, tell me again that story about how you met Mom. Yeah. And then every once in a while you notice he'll tell that story a little differently. <laughs> you know? And like, oh, wait, that's not really true. Or maybe that's a little too perfect. And last time you said you were indoors and not outdoors. And you realize that, like, on some level he's just telling the best story. Uh-huh. Even if it's not necessarily the most accurate story. 
And this kid who has a lot of really banal memories, you know, just growing up, no, some of them were interesting like, than others. Like my mom could make five meals out of a canned ham. Yeah, let's watch stuff, her do yeah. that for a while. Um, but uh, in his head, and he even talks about it, like he would go to like show and tell and he'd just make stuff up. Mm. And he would just say, I, was a, I would call myself a fabulous. Most people would call me a liar. <laughs> and so when you're watching the movie and you realize he's, this whole NASA thing is probably just that. Mm. A part of me wishes there'd been like one little bit of like, Maybe towards the end, like <laughs> one little thing, like just like you used to cut to like NASA it's going, like, yeah. like where did those other footprints come from? Like that kind of thing, like yeah, you know, like, Neil like Armstrong sits down and looks d- like looks down and sees the the boys' footprints. That would have been a there. great moment. That would have been sweet, and then mm. he still would have wondered mm. if that, how true that was. I think that might have been a little little sweet spot that the movie kind of missed. But yeah, I, um, but I think. Uh, there have been a lot of boomer nostalgia films recent. Uh, I call them boomer years. porn. We're boomer, basically yeah, just like, hey, much. remember the '60s and um, or '70s? I, I because can't. It's once upon yeah. a time in, in Hollywood. Yeah, it's yeah. Licorice, Licorice Pizza, Pizza definitely. Yeah. yeah, these are and they're kind of endless in, movies for the in, most part. In a way, um, uh, it's just about it's just about Rick, remembering what it's like to live then, even yeah. if nothing was happening. Uh, what's his name? Uh, Rick Fawima. Fo- um, Oh yeah, uh, he he kind of does that too with Inglewood, California. Yeah, like, like what it was like to grow up in the nineties like and yeah, dope, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah dope and then the wood. Uh, yeah. Um, so yeah, their their nostalgia pieces do come along pretty frequently, and you yeah. know it's about the filmmaker kind of sharing that. It um this one and the other two you mentioned mm-hmm. are yeah very much they're only by filmmakers who are about the same age, uh, and they're all about sort of a very specific experience um, yeah. of the three. Well, I guess I can't really say this, but um. I like this better than Licorice Pizza. I'll say that's that. right because I can't okay. I can't comment on uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah, he, you still have worked for yeah, Quentin Tarantino I'm, I'm very still, recently. Yeah, it's so. still arguably conflict of interest. Uh, I, I, I will I, say very confidently that I like yeah, this more I like than this. both of those. I think mm-hmm. all three of them are taking very distinct liberties with history for mm-hmm. just because that's how their memories work and that's the kind of story yeah. they want to tell. Um, I think this one is much more focused in a lot think, of ways well, than both of those. I think the, its point is sweeter, it's which po- is nice. Its point is sweeter. It has a. I think because of the animation, it has like a lot more of a tactile quality to it mm. where you're really sort of living the memory uh, in that sort mm-hmm. of halcyon way rather than just sort of uh, ogling impressive production design. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite bits is where they go to a place. and I'm not sure if it's still functioning. It's called Astro World. It was uh, the, yeah, the Houston uh, Disneyland. There's a couple of like uh, uh, YouTube video series I watch. I think it's like, uh, yeah. There's Defunct Land, there's mm. Expedition Theme Park, and I think it's like Yesterworld. And what they do is they look at the history of defunct or sometimes not, but usually defunct amusement park rides or amusement parks. Mm. And you get to sort of just see what it's like or what it was like, what was the history of the ride. The history of amusement park rides is way more interesting than I ever thought it would be. <laughs> I never thought I'd be interested uh, in it. I just started the way watching they were designed, the people who designed Seriously, them, watch Defunct Land. It's, it's Stuff that you would never think was interesting is absolutely fascinating yeah. if you look through it through the right lens, which I think is what a lot of movies are as well, especially movies about the past. But uh, um, I like the whole Astro World sequence. That was cool. Uh, that was fun. Near the end of the movie, they go to the, to Astro World, yeah. and because it's animated, they could probably recreate it a lot more accurately. Yeah, they probably could just take old home videos and just paint over. Yeah, exactly, yeah. and um, uh, it's they are going the morning of uh, the moon landing. The yeah. moon landing is going to be that evening, and yeah. they just don't know what to do for the the day, so they just go to the amusement park during the day, and they're going to go home and watch the moon landing. Right. Uh, and so as such, their minds are just full of all this space stuff. And my favorite bit is, you know, they're really excited. The moon landing's coming mm. and, you know, they're kind of remembering this wonderful time they had. And there's, uh, like a Matterhorn-like ride where a guy in a Yeti suit would jump out and like kind of savage yeah, you. Not animatronic, just like a guy like, in a just suit. A guy in a suit. Every time someone went by, he goes, rah. Yeah. 
No, that's your job. That was, yeah. that was some guy's job. Yes. And uh, they said uh, one time we saw him without the head on, and he's just taking a smoke break. <laughs> and they just and, wipe past. And he's like, 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 like chicken drag. Rar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Like that, that feels, All that stuff is that, that feels like a real thing. Like that's well, probably something Linklater experienced. And I will say this: I will say I, I'm not okay. I really didn't like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood for reasons right. I've established for a long time. I find its attitudes and its ending are very misguided. Uh, but I always appreciate its sense of place. Mm. I feel the same for Licorice Pizza. I think an impeccable sense of place, but I actually think that the story doesn't work at all, and mm-hmm. there's a lot I don't like about it. Um, this is one where it's just as free roaming. It's just as rambling. Mm. It feels it on one hand it feels more real because it's honest about just being someone's memory. Yeah. Someone just saying, and well, then I remember this, and, and then also, I remember that, uh, and then I remember that. And so I'm willing to forgive it that yeah. a lot more. And also because the plot is almost non existent. The whole plot is just this I was a, a preteen astronaut mm. thing, which is really not even that big a part of the movie in terms of actual screen time. Mm. Uh, a part of me is a little annoyed by that because it's such an interesting premise. I kind of wish we'd had dedicated <laughs> more time to it. But I realize now that the movie's over, that's not what they were getting at, and I appreciate that. Um, I think it's it's really really good though. Um, yeah, because you look at Licorice Pizza. Like, how old is P.T. Anderson? And how old was he during the events of Licorice Pizza? I was, was he was a kid. He was yeah. a kid. Yeah, yeah. he's probably younger than the protagonists in that movie. Probably. Yeah, um, I, I can say for sure, and this is I can say this objectively: mm-hmm. Quentin Tarantino was a boy during the events of yeah. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah, he was a kid. just because I know when he was born, and it takes place in 1969. Uh, I feel like Richard Linklater did something very smart in making the protagonist a child, somebody who was his age at the time yeah. in question, because his perception is now filtered through that lens. Yeah. And it's a little bit more direct a memory trip than these other movies, which are trying to sort of spin a narrative out of that time involving characters that aren't the age of the, of the filmmaker. I feel like, and again, I know you can't speak to it, but I feel like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and Licorice Pizza are absolutely convinced of their story's greatness. Mm-hmm. And I feel like Apollo 10 and a half is not convinced of its greatness. I think it's actually very... It's very, modest, it's yeah. very aware of its modesty. It's very well of its almost banality. Where basically, and this is just what it was like. I'm not as high on the movies. I know you really, really like this movie a lot. And I think I it's very, very I really good. I think it's very good, and I am. Uh, I ultimately, rec- whether or not I'm going to give it like a high C or a C plus, I don't know. But like, uh, I haven't made that call yet. But I, I do mostly like it. Uh, but, uh, I, oh, but I do think... Uh, th- I just looked it up. Six Flags Astroworld uh-huh. closed in 2005. Ah, uh, bummer. Yeah. Okay, so... It, it was run by Six Flags from 75 to 2005. Okay. Uh, before that, it was uh, independently owned. Okay. It op- and it opened in 68, so uh, yeah. this movie takes place in 69. Uh, yeah, there's there's so a, a video... A there's a video I just watched about, like, one of the rides at Astroworld, so definitely check out those things I mentioned yeah. earlier. But um, I still feel, though, that this movie's... Again, it seems like you asked your dad, or maybe if you're really young, your granddad, what it was like to grow up in the 60s, mm. and then they went on for like an hour and 45 minutes. And, uh, Whether or not that's interesting to you, your mileage might vary, uh, because it really is just, and then this was happening, and then this happened, and this was the candy we had back then. And I'm not equally fascinated by all of this. Uh, Frankly, I find a lot of it a little dull. Uh, so... I appreciate that this is your nostalgia trip. I feel as though the subgenre of what I would call boomer porn mm. is often way more for the filmmakers than it is the audience. <laughs> I feel like it's, it's them think, trying to recreate their what, past or their yeah. perceived past so that I it think, has been uh, recorded for posterity. And it's not necessarily about necessarily mm. the audience getting something specific out of it Although, other than just trying to 
capture history in a bottle. I'll, I'll say this. If the filmmaker is skilled enough mm. in communicating the emotions they were feeling and how important that was to them, yeah. then uh, it's, it doesn't really matter if they're just sort of going through their own nostalgia. Granted, but here, and it's it's kind of a double-edged sword. On mm. one hand, making it, telling it from the perspective of a kid keeps it from feeling like it's like too big for their britches or that it's... Or that mm. it, uh, mm. It carries an adult perspective that the filmmaker wasn't there for, maybe wouldn't feel as genuinely. But it's also a kid. His needs are actually very minimal, and his emotional engagement with a lot of stuff is really minimal. Yeah. And as a result, my emotional engagement with a lot of this stuff was minimal. <laughs> well, okay. It felt very passive. It felt just like when I look back on my childhood, and your your childhood is different. People have different childhoods, obviously. Some are more uh, more halcyon than others. Some are more difficult than others. Some are very very painful. Some are full of incident, some are not. When I look back on my childhood and I think about, like, maybe the really, the best summers, mm. you know? Like, the summers were, like, you know, like, it was, it was you know, between fourth and fifth grade or whatever it was, and the weather was just right, and we went to the pool a lot. And I think to myself, that is not worth making a movie about. <laughs> that is maybe worth revisiting, but I'm not entirely sure that's worth making a whole feature film about because it's basically just, ah, that was nice. I don't know. But, um... I do like this movie. I don't want. To, I'm just saying. Why I don't love this movie, maybe as much as Wendy does, is because I think its aimlessness is part of its charm, but yeah, also yeah. kind of keeping it down a little bit. It's I, kind of keeping it from from being truly hmm. more than just mildly interesting okay. in some regards. I, I uh, I'm not sure if you get this, and I've, I think yeah. I've talked about this before. Um, but have you ever been watching a movie where, uh, mm. like, in the first 10, 15 minutes of the movie, you're just sort of, like, lowering yourself into that world? Yeah, you're, you're being introducing into characters it, yeah. for, the, for the first time, and you're yeah. learning the details and the ins and outs of what these characters are going. And then once all that's been established, then you get the incident, the thing that gets the story started. The plot. Have you ever felt a little let down when the plot begins? Sometimes. Yeah, when the plot's like yeah. really, really, uh, here, like this you're, is exactly like you're the exact so, opposite. You're so enjoying everything, yeah. uh, sort of leading into those like little details that you kind of resent that we have to go through shake the it up and we have to start going through the motions of a plot and yeah. like change this, this wonderful world that you've sort of been lowering yourself yeah, into. Yeah, right, right, because this is the exact opposite here. We yeah. start with the plot. Yeah, the first like two scenes but are the are the big think, plot, and then it just eases into oh, we'll get to that in like fifty minutes. Let me tell you to, about yeah. breakfast. <laughs> Let me tell you about you know, the time I saw the monkeys on the Johnny Cash show. Um, I think Richard Linklater realizes like, okay, we do this plot. You know what? Actually, that's not why I'm here. Yeah, I, I just don't actually care that let, much. Let's, about let's that. actually just sort of hang out here for a little yeah. while, and I like that. I like that we were able to just sort of hang out. I'm curious. I'd be. I'd be. I would love to interview Richard Linklater. And ask if was this structure always the intention, mm. or did you like write a draft that was way more about the NASA thing, and then realize that the stuff you really liked was all the incidental stuff, and then you started just like taking out more NASA stuff to make room for it, <laughs> or was it always like this sort of like halcyon memory thing, and then you realize it was a little bland, so you added the NASA thing in order to sort of give it a punchy ending and beginning. Yeah, I'm curious where this began. That's what I would be very. I mean, mm. how it evolved into this. Did it start here, or did it come here? And if so, by which route? I'd be really interested to learn that. Um, anyway, we need to move on. The next two films are films that only you saw. Okay. Uh, so we're going to get through them pretty quickly. Also on Netflix is a film called The Bubble, which I believe is uh, about a bubble of some kind. Uh, it, it is indeed. Um, right. The Bubble is the latest film from Judd Apatow. Cool. Uh, the Bubble. 
That's a great noise. That's so encouraging. <laughs> that would be like that would be like imagine just like uh, Whitney. I've always loved you, and I would like you to be my husband. Will you please marry me? Uh... Oh, <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, you did ask that. <laughs> I suppose I'm gonna have to talk about the bubble now. The bubble is repellently terrible. Wow! It is really bad. That's you didn't even say that about Morbius. No, well, Mor- Morbius is just a badly made vampire movie. I can it, stomach a badly made. You vampire can only, movie. You can only be so mad at it. It only has so much uh, ambition. John Apatow is trying to send up the coronavirus in the <laughs> bubble, and uh, uh, and millions of people die, and how. These poor uh. actors had to go through nasal swabs, and how horrible that was for them. Uh, it's about uh, the production of a fictional movie. It's a, a sort of a, a telling of the making of this fictional movie that was being made during lockdown, when a mm. lot of COVID uh, precautions were kept in place. Which is true for a so, lot of movies. Yeah. A lot of and, movies uh, had to shut down, at least temporarily. Uh, yeah. Everybody had to get tested. They had to do their nasal swabs. A yeah. lot of time is taken in this movie to stress just what a horrible experience that was. Well, the nasal and, swabs uh, do suck. They, they Nobody suck. Nobody likes the nasal swabs. They suck, but uh, not to the degree that this movie uh, is trying to satirize, because it's something we all all kind of relate to. Well, uh, and because, because seriously, like it's it's a very minor thing considering all the deaths that happen. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I'm so, happy to do the nasal swabs. It's but fine. in, in order just, to like, make this this film called it's called Cliff Beasts Six. Uh, it's the sixth film. It's a big hit blockbuster movie. Sure. Uh, I'm I'm assuming that this is maybe uh, a sort of a, a fictional telling of the making of uh, the ghost. Oh, I guess that was before COVID. Ghostbusters, no, Ghostbusters but, was just about done before COVID. Yeah. Um. Anyway, uh, Judd Apatow is uh, has assembled all of his friends. There's a lot of famous people in this movie. Uh, the main character is played by Karen Gillan. She's the lead actress in Cliff Beasts, and mm-hmm. she has to go through uh, into the bubble where all of the actors have been tested, and they're all going to be enclosed and just sort of uh, be locked in with one another while they're in they're in production on this movie, which is about fighting these dinosaur monsters on a cliff. Cliff Beasts. Uh, David Duchovny is in the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, uh, Pedro Pascal is in the movie. Uh, okay. Uh, uh, Judd Apatow's daughter is in the movie as a, like a, this TikTok star. And she's sort of like oh, a gimme for the production of the movie. And there's a few really well choreographed dance numbers with all of these famous people. Yeah. Uh, Beck has a cameo in this movie. Kate McKinnon plays the producer on the movie. Uh, everybody's somebody you recognize. Yeah. And uh, Karen Gillan has to uh, quarantine for two weeks and goes completely insane for those two weeks. Okay. We already had Bo Burnham inside. Yeah. This, that was this, for months. This, this little like four minute montage about going crazy during quarantine is funny and it's not analytical it's not really adding anything yeah just what a pain that was remember you had tv yes i remember come on <laughs> i was there yeah it's not, it's not unique uh, to that character in fact they probably had it better and, than most people and of course all of the characters all the actor characters are all really shallow and self-obsessed and they all kind of are worried about their place in this movie and more than anything they're going so stir crazy that they're risking infection all the time and then the virus starts spreading through and they're just as shallow as they always were. Yeah. Uh, there is a, and they know nothing about uh, how to compose themselves in sort of a stressful situation. So they're all just sort of freaking out all the time and there's a lot okay. of yelling. Uh, Leslie Mann's in the movie. Uh, Leslie Mann tries to flee at one point and because they have armed guards, she gets shot. Now you'd think this would what? be uh, a moment for like, 
it's like this moment of dark satire well, that speaks a, out against quarantine. That sort of like, becomes um, like dystopia. Yeah. Did you do you it's remember not practical that film? Anymore. I didn't see the film, but a film came out uh, during quarantine called I think it was called Songbird. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. It was basically like was what if what if the quarantine became an excuse to build a fascist super state? Exactly. Yeah. And, it, it, and it was clearly made by people who saw lockdown measures, yeah. like public safety and lockdown measures as mm-hmm. the first step in fascism. Like, it was yeah. an excuse. It wasn't real. I, I didn't see the film. The reviews were not kind, and no. a lot of people said it was um, that's, kind of a poor attitude to take. That's yeah. all I can get out of the bubble, that all of these precautions we were taking were completely foolish, and we were putting ourselves through pain for no good reason. Cool. And it goes on for two hours and six bloody minutes because it's a, lo- a Judd Apatow. A lot film. of people died. A lot of people died. And then the, when we when we when we weren't now is is there know? a comedy to be made about the lockdown? Yes, we oh, saw sure. it. It was called Bo Burnham Inside. Well, I mean, if, if nothing else, that proves it can be done. Yeah, that's, 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 I mean, that's the, it, like, there's, there's, there's a lot of like, lot of pain and depression well, like, in that and movie, like, but it is a comedy. And you can make other, other host is a movie made mm. during and about the quarantine in a lot mm. of ways. Um, it's not to say that this is an this is uh, off limits. Hmm. This topic, and I didn't see this one, but I do think it's probably safe to say. And tell me if you think I'm wrong about this. Hmm. This is just a generality. It's difficult to tell a story about a very recent event uh, because you might lack the context in order to have anything meaningful to say about it. Yeah, yeah. I found that's true a lot. Occasionally you'll see it. All the President's Men came out just right after uh, Watergate and that movie somehow managed to make it work. But usually Mm. I find people are like desperately trying to be topical, but they're not necessarily being thoughtful. Yeah. Um, is this one of those, or is this a different thing? It's it's not... It's trying to be topical, but has nothing to say. Um, yeah, that's my point. Yeah. There's a, another conceit. Um, uh, Fred Armisen is in this movie. He plays the director of this Cliff B6 movie. Okay. And he is, in the model of a lot of modern blockbuster filmmaking, a successful indie filmmaker who is brought on by the big studio to sort of... Yeah. Follow orders more or less. Like you yeah. know, they know we know they have bring talent. it, bring it, bring a particular flavor to our orders. Uh, yeah, more yeah. or less. Like yeah. a lot of this is in place already. You just have to make it for us. And, yeah. Uh, the theory is that these filmmakers are clearly talented and they clearly have a voice, but they don't have quite enough clout to push back against the studio. Yeah. Uh, so they're just going to sort of be excited to be part yeah. of this big project. It's, and I and would the story think... goes that's why Steven Spielberg, who offered multiple times to direct a James Bond movie, was not allowed to. Mm. Because they were he, just like he, he even he at the time, Spielberg movie. even early in his career, he had he did Jaws. He had the cloud. He could mm. push back and like tell yeah, the producers yeah. what to do. Uh, I find it kind of odd that Sam Mendes, um, yeah, did James Bond movies. Like, well, he he actually was pretty established. He actually had some yeah, hits it, before he was he, doing James they Bond. They weren't huge box office hits. Well, one, one, pretty, one of them won Best Picture. For gonna well, say, I'm not, saying, but, I'm not uh, saying that they were unpopular. I'm just saying I think there's a difference. But like Michael Apted was a well, respected yeah, uh, director as well. But you give him two hundred million dollars, you'll yeah. tell him you'll tell him what to do with that money, it's not true. the other My, way around. I, I admire Michael Apted actually for it's, sort of moving back and forth so nimbly, but yeah. um. I, I would hope that Judd Apatow, who also made like smaller, low-budget comedies in his career, mm-hmm. uh, would think that uh, think to make a satire of the Hollywood machine. And all of these actors. Oh, Keegan Michael Key is an, another actor in this. So he's actually mm-hmm. a big, uh, plays a big part in this. Um, that there would be some sort of comment on the soullessness of this factory-like filmmaking process right. when it comes to blockbusters, because Judd Apatow has also made. Bigger movies. He hasn't made like super, made super genre movies, films, like superhero movies, but he's, he's, he's made some of the biggest comedies of the last twenty years. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, 
But that that's not a comment that's really made here either. It's more just, mm. let's get all of my famous friends together and have them, like, riff and do annoying things. And whine about how these lockdown procedures are really, really inconvenient, and they probably shouldn't be put into place, and Leslie Mann is going to get shot because of it. She doesn't die, by the way. Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, she, she, she takes a bullet, but she's not. She, she doesn't die. Well, I'm glad to hear it. Mm. I like Leslie Mann. I like Leslie Mann too. He's very talented. Uh, it's difficult to sit through this movie from moment to loathsome moment. Wow. Of unfunny whining. Is it just because they're like a lot of inside Hollywood movies are a little out of touch. Like they sort mm-hmm. of think that our lives are super interesting and like really important when really mm-hmm. you're leaving this weird charmed life and everyone at home mm-hmm. is kind of like not really connected to your experience. Is it like that or is it just badly done? It's just badly done. And I, okay. I think the, the point might've been that these actors and sort of sealing themselves off from the world, they see like their lives sort of slipping away from them because they're in this bubble. But they're also, they're making a blockbuster film. It's not like they're doing some sort of important work and making some kind of sacrifice. And they become really self-obsessed. But Judd Apatow doesn't seem to want to really mock how awful they are. Mm. He's just showing us awful people and saying, hey, these these people are funny. He doesn't seem to acknowledge that the how terrible these human beings are or how terrible this premise is. This is clearly just straight comedy to him. And I'm not comfortable with that. Well, I think that this movie is bleeding awful and i i was just loath to make my way make my way to the end there was at the very least one funny scene right near the end where mm. uh two of the characters they're finally like on the run and the big action climax has started and uh, that's all i'm gonna say but um two characters have to fight mm. but they're two actors and they don't know how to fight so in like approaching each other the fight they start doing the not-hitting-each-other fight choreography from the movie they're working on. Uh, and they're actually doing it really well, and then they have yeah. to, like, start, okay, wait, wait, let's start this fight over again, and they just do the choreography over again, because that's the only way they know how to fight. That's kind of fun. That's kind of cute. Yeah. Um, I, I wish there were more moments like that. Ah. But there aren't. All right, well, we got... Uh, <laughs> oh, God, the bubble. <laughs> well, let's move on. You got one more movie, and it's the latest film from Justin oh. Kurtzel, uh-huh. who had previously directed an adaptation of Hamlet. He had previously directed Assassin's Creed. Or he did. He did Macbeth, not Hamlet. I apologize. Yes, I totally whiffed that. Mm. He had done uh, the version of Macbeth with Michael Fossbender. A movie uh, I don't like. Actually. I'm, I'm actually not. A, he, great uh, cinematography in that movie, but the movie itself uh, yeah, doesn't a, a really lot of, understand the play yeah. very well. Uh, he, yeah, he also did the Assassin's Creed feature film, which I also don't like. Which uh, is also a film that didn't understand its source material mm. very well. Uh, mm. And uh, now we've got a new film that's kind of based on a true story here. Uh-huh. And, and uh, uh, yeah. And golly, Justin Kersel has surprised me, because this is actually a very soulful, thoughtful movie a- about a real-life murderer. Oh, um, well, melancholy about that. I feel bad about <laughs> yeah, the yay yeah, now, uh, but well, I'm glad you, it's a good you, movie. You didn't have that information yet. I'm glad it's a um, good movie. Yeah, this was based on a real shooting that took place in Australia in um, uh, 1999, I believe. 96. Um, oh, 96. We'll get up now. Uh, 96, uh, the, yeah. the Port Arthur Massacre, it was in Tasmania. And it's about uh, this character named Neitrom. Uh Neitrom is Martin backwards. The actual shooter was named uh, Martin Bryant. Ah. Uh, this Neitrom character is played by an actor named uh, Caleb Landry-Jones. He's Great. Oh, Kill Hinton's great in everything. Yeah, and yeah. he he like he has this long blonde hair that's kind of covering his face, and mm. he's uh, and he's he's suffering from some sort of like a lot of undiagnosed mental illnesses, and he lives with his mother, who's played by Judy Davis, and his father is played by Anthony LaPaglia, and 
they and and they're all based very much on the actual killer and the actual killer's parents. Mm. Uh, but it, this is also like a fictionalized version, and we sort of see how he brushes very gently against acceptance throughout his life. Mm. Uh, you know, at, at the beginning of the movie, he's setting off firecrackers like right before bedtime, and you know everybody's yelling at him, and, the, and he doesn't really kind of have the wherewithal to stop. Uh, he yells a lot. And he get, has a lot of you know anger control issues. I think Caleb Landry Jones is excellent in portraying somebody who, un, like is having a lot of these impulse control problems, but making them seem like uh, some like a real human is underneath there somewhere. It's not like he is merely a monster, like the way movies tend to depict uh, people. It's like actually trying to get into the psychology of this guy a little bit. Uh, he ends up having uh, an affair with a much older woman in the neighborhood and seems to have sort of evened out a little bit. But uh, this woman passes away, mm. leaves him all of her money, and now here's this rich guy who has been cut off from everything, who doesn't really have a place to sort of go. Uh, he wants to go to America. He talks about going on this pilgrimage to, pilgrimage to America, and he goes to New York, and uh, doesn't really seem to understand humanity once he gets to the big city. It's like kind of this mm. big bustle to him. He can't really sort of absorb all of the input he's getting. Uh, the only place he really kind of starts to feel at home is when he goes into a gun shop. Uh, he goes to buy a gun and the guys are like, hey, hey, I want this gun and this gun and this gun. And it's like, yeah, oh yeah, these are really good. And he's actually like communicating with a person for the first time. And that's wow. pretty chilling, isn't it? Because yeah. we know how the story ends. Yikes. Um, evidently, this case was so fam- so infamous in uh, in Australia that it uh, instigated a huge amount of gun legislation throughout the country. Yeah. And uh, all of these laws were passed where uh, getting guns was supposed to be made so much more difficult. And uh, apparently uh, it's pretty much worked. Uh, only it hasn't. There are actually uh. more guns in private hands now than there were before that law was passed. Okay. Uh, there have been but has gun violence of... gone down? Am I wrong about that? Gun violence has gone down, all but right. gun ownership is still up. And, uh, you all know, right. I, I think... Well, then maybe I'm, uh, I, then I'm ignorant and I apologize. Well, I didn't know that either. The, this movie right. pointed this out to okay. me. Uh, so this is about sort of gun legislation, mental health legislation, uh, more than anything. And uh, is weirdly... Uh, humane, but also very horrified by the complexity and the depths of terror in the human soul, and especially with this murderer, this person who has uh, you know, committed this horrible crime. Uh, it, it's certainly not fun, uh, Nitram. I think it is kind of vital to sort of get into that headspace, understand, uh, and, and it's not sympathetic to the alienation. It's not saying, you know, whoa, is he, he was sort of like, doing something that felt logical to him. It never feels logical, but it feel we do understand why he's doing what he's doing. And I think that's a difficult thing to do, especially with such a well, monst- monstrous character. It's yeah, frightening yeah. To get, to, it really, it's, it's that whole banality of evil thing yeah. that, uh, you know, there, but for a few twists of fate there, but yeah. for the grace of God. Uh, and yeah, this, this, uh, trying to reach out to this young man and trying to get him help just wasn't really chipping through. And, uh, he wasn't given uh, the enough preparation to understand that going into a gun shop and picking up guns was not a path for him. He just, that yeah, was just was sort of, the, that was the path right he was going to go down. Yeah. Uh, I think this film would benefit if you know a little bit more about the shooting. I actually did a little bit of research after the fact and understood, you mm-hmm. know, a little bit more of what it was getting at. See, but so even if you don't, yeah. I think it is a really interesting sort of psychological study. 
Yeah. Whether I, or not you know it relates to something real or not. Well, that may be the case. We were having this conversation about one of the Oscar-nominated animated yeah, shorts. Bestia, and, and how um, I, I honestly feel like the more you know about the actual incident, the stronger that film is. Mm-hmm. Uh, your, well, argument is I, your argument I is that it, it kind of works regardless. I think it works as a horror movie even if you don't have those details. Well, I, th- I think yeah. it's a fair... I, whether you call it a critique or suggestion or whatever, I think it's a fair thing to say. Mm-hmm. And Yeah, fair enough. Um, so, okay. Mm-hmm. A filmmaker we weren't high. This is just goes to show you never know. Yeah, I, we I was. We weren't I was actually, Justin Kurtzel, but here I we was, go. Yeah, very pleasantly, very pleased that Justin Kurtzel was able to put forth, forth something so dramatic and so hmm. weirdly humane, but also very chilling, uh, and you know, put in a lot of good acting and good scenes uh, of actual you know drama, rather than just the artificial style crap that he'd been doing with. Uh, hmm. uh, uh, Macbeth and with uh, uh, Assassin's Creed. Yeah, uh, I didn't see uh, the true history of the Kelly Gang. I heard that was good, but I, I didn't heard, see yeah, that. I heard that one was a good one. I didn't see um, that one. So, uh, but yeah, I, I didn't like Macbeth. I didn't like Assassin's Creed. But I, I do like Neat- I do like do like Neatrom. I think it's a, a very oh. chilling, very well put together movie. I'm not sure. I'm gonna rush out to see it because it doesn't really sound like a let's spend date night watching. This, Look, but uh, like, but I'll, but there's I'll, something to be said. Well, being being confronted and being yeah. uh, hurt by a movie, mm-hmm. being emotionally devastated by a movie, mm. is a profound form of entertainment. Well, and yes, and I like being devastated when I see a movie, and I like when something can get under my skin. Mm-hmm. So you know, when people say I don't want to see that because I want something light for date night, well, maybe. Well, okay, maybe you know what I was. You know, you know what, I was being glib. Be, I was yeah, being glib, and well, I apologize. You're being glib, but I think what you know what you said is is reflected in a lot of people. I don't want to see a movie that's depressing. Why not? I like being depressed by a movie. Well, oh, I definitely don't uh, want to make these. I definitely don't want to make the suggestion uh, that just because something isn't something I would normally seek out for fun, that other people wouldn't or shouldn't. Yeah, that yeah. I feel like is a huge mistake. The idea that uh, oh i wouldn't watch power of the dog for fun i would mm. that's definitely on the like more art house uh realm that i would actually would watch just because it sounds like a good idea tonight uh-huh. we all have certain uh, uh material uh whether it's just because you're not a fan of a genre or maybe certain themes are really heavy for you and you know kind of are are uh, maybe not suited towards having a good mental health night mm-hmm. we maybe avoid under certain circumstances when we're feeling certain ways. I definitely don't want to uh, pretend that that's not a thing. Uh, but you're right. And and I think there is a definite, unfortunate wave right now. We had this a lot after the Oscars, and we talked a bit about it when we reviewed it, where there's this almost anti-art kind of mentality mm-hmm. now, where it's like, we want our films to be entertaining, but we don't see art as entertainment. We don't well, see like, like we don't, we see... don't see artistic ambition as entertainment. Yeah, uh, we I see remember, artistic um, enter- entertainment or or escapism, the, perhaps. Uh, but uh, stories that actually confront us mm, and yeah. challenge us are seen as something to be avoided more often than not. Mm-hmm. And I apologize for, for accidentally coming into that no, I, uh, perspective because I don't think that's what I want to do. Yeah, I was being glib because it's late and I'm tired. It's late, yeah. you're tired, and, and it's yeah. it's. A, pretty aggressively uh, dour subject matter. Yeah. It's, you know, it's about a, sh- a real-life shooting. Real yeah. people are dead. Uh, that's not something to you know feel good about. Um, but I think this is also a good way to sort of explore in a, sort of a safe fictional place. The same yeah. reason we watch horror movies, so we can confront our fears. If our fears are a little bit more real-world world fears, this, you know, something, a tastefully done drama can attack those things very, very well. Uh, and so I liked Neutron. Mm-hmm. I liked the way it was put forth. And I think... Uh, this kind of movie is very valuable. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but yeah, to your point, I remember uh, uh, Trevor Noah, the comedian Trevor Noah. Yeah, uh, he had a bit, like, like, had a like bit a week about ago, yeah. about the Oscars and how uh, so many Oscar movies are. He said it's like eating your vegetables. Yeah. Well, first of all, vegetables are good for you. For, you should eat Secondly, some vegetables uh, once in a while. Like you, you really should for the sake of your body. Yeah, uh, at least sometimes eat vegetables. Secondly, why is he saying that this year of all years? Because there was like so much variety in the Best Picture nominees this yeah, year. Dune was one of the highest grossing yeah, was, movies of the year. There was and a, lot a, a bunch of awards. A high, a high grossing sci fi epic. Uh, yeah. a, a satirical comedy film, whether or not you liked it. With well, a huge ensemble cast. Yeah. A really dark noir film from an established genre filmmaker. Yeah. Uh, you know, a, the winner was this sort of like lightweight family dramedy. Yeah. Uh, like it was, and, something for, it was something for everyone. And, and then year, yeah. and like a big mainstream musical directed by, you know, of all people, Steven Spielberg. Like literally, there was literally something for everyone at this year's Academy yeah, Awards. So, like, well, yeah, maybe not literally, but a lot of stuff for a lot of people. Uh, he might have only been referring to the power of the dog, which is yeah. sl- you know a little bit slower paced well, than your, your also. But also, by the time you're doing that, Power of the Dog only won one Oscar. It's like yeah. it's not it's not the film anymore. <laughs> it's talking about anymore. Um, I mean, I mean, good. I really love the power there, of the dog. There's a better version of that argument that was made this week. You know, the mm-hmm. whole like, I don't want to eat my vegetables. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, movies are too complicated. I don't want to see art house stuff. I just want like Transformers to win stuff. I understand that. I don't think it's the healthiest way to look at art. What I do understand, and what I actually thought was not only funny, but uh, uh, observant. Mm-hmm was a music video that was on Saturday Night Live this week from Pete Davidson, and I don't know if he wrote it. Oh, you you, you yeah. showed this to me. Yeah. It's a it's a song about when it's late at night and you want to watch something and you're just trying to decide what to on, watch on the various streaming, streaming services. services yeah. <laughs> you're not necessarily just looking for a genre or, or a tone. Or a filmmaker. Sometimes yeah. you're just looking at how long it is. Mm. I do not want to start a four-hour movie at 10 o'clock at night. Mm. I am tired. I'm looking for a short movie. It's mm. an entire song about how I value short movies. And I appreciate any Saturday Night Live sketch that finds the value in Eraserhead. Yeah. <laughs> it's like Driving Miss Daisy. That's, 80, that's 99 minutes. Yeah. I can do that. Yeah, and Evil like, Dead, Eraserhead. Yeah. <laughs> they rhyme <laughs> Evil Dead and Eraserhead. Yeah, like yeah. I appreciate... And then they do a whole bit about all the Earnest movies, none of which I think are streaming right now, but It's whatever. not all the Earnest movies. They skipped a couple. They did skip a yeah, couple. They Most skipped of the Earnest, Earnest Rides again. Well, they had trouble rhyming Earnest Rides again, yeah, but anyway... So. But, uh, but I appreciate they, uh, because that is that is something that we all do. We go for mm-hmm. ease of consumption once in a while. And what then, is easiest was... for us to watch? It, it, maybe it's... And it, what I like about it is some of the movies they talk about are banal, generic entertainments, like the Ernest movies. Yeah. But also Eraserhead. Also Eraserhead. incredibly complicated content as well. Uh, it's basically just like I'm looking for something that fits into my schedule. There is a practicality to be considered sometimes when we decide what we're going to watch. And all of this ties together because that song was sung by Pete Davidson. Mm-hmm. Or Davidson or Davidson? Davidson. Davidson. Pete Davidson. Yeah. yeah. Uh, who was in a movie called The King of Staten Island. Yeah. King of Staten Island is two hours and 16 minutes in length. There's a great joke in the song It about was it. directed by... Judd, Judd Apatow. Apatow. Yeah. <laughs> Judd Apatow, like Paul Thomas Anderson, uh-huh. needs an editor that will say no to him. Yeah, we need someone who's <laughs> like, no, 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 no. You do not need 88 jokes mm. about the same damn thing this, in a this, scene. Yeah, need you, to... you need to make an 88-minute movie. Yeah, that's the material you've got. I know it mm. seems like everything Paul Rudd ad-libbed today was a zinger. We have room for one. Mm. Pick the good one. <laughs> 
You're allowed to yell at you pick, <laughs> but you only get one, and it better be good because one joke yeah. is funnier than ten jokes, mm-hmm. where the middle eight jokes are just there to make that tenth joke yeah, seem like okay, final laugh at this. Uh, there's, there's uh, on that note, we're gonna end up the podcast. Uh, we're gonna, we're gonna review our films on a critically acclaimed scale. We review our films on a scale of C minus to C plus. Uh-huh. Uh, most movies average out to about a C, or at least most of our reviews would average to about a C. Uh, C is, uh, you know, average. Some good, some bad. Maybe some people will like it more than others. You know, it's more for one audience than another. But just not a definite recommendation and not a definite pan. Mm. C plus is above average. We definitely recommend those movies. We see these. We think these are good movies. Whether they're simply really good or the greatest movie of all time, anywhere in that, anywhere in that uh, mm. zone. And then C minus is below average. That's where a movie is below average. Uh, we don't particularly like this movie. Maybe we think it's terrible. Anywhere in that zone. On that note, mm-hmm. uh, I guess we had ended up with Neutron. Uh, Neutron is a C plus. Okay. I, I think this is a really, really good, very penetrating psychological drama about a, a, a horrendous uh, real life event, and actually is bothering to look at it without cheaping it with like melodrama. Got it. Okay. What about uh, mm-hmm. the bubble? The bubble C minus. Ah. Uh, I. This might even make it on my to my list of the worst films of the year. Uh, it, it is just insufferable. Well, it doesn't sound... How sufferable is it? It is insufferable. There you go. Uh, next up, uh, Apollo 10 and a Half, mm. A Space Age Childhood. Uh, I, I really adored this one. I think Richard Richard Linklater has just the talent of getting under my skin. Yeah, he's, something he's about one of your way, filmmakers. He is. Yeah. It's just something about the way he constructs conversation and the way he communicates. Just, and just, the, mm. just the words he writes are, are uh, just the right kind that kind of uh, mm. appeal to me directly. Directly. So I'm watching this and I'm just sort of getting swept up in sort of the halcyon feelings of it. It feels like actual memories. I think it's incredibly well done. I love the animation. I mm. give it a C plus. Um, I definitely like it quite a bit. I'm going to go with a high C on this one just because right. I think uh, I think your uh, your experience might vary. You might get completely swept up in this, like Whitney, or like me, you might say to yourself, "This is very sweet and very." Um, impeccably crafted and there's a lot of genuineness to it but at the same time i also feel like we could be getting on with it now thank you we feel like we're just sort of <laughs> letting dad ramble a while uh so but it, you know, but it is which is exactly sh- what it is, is a short movie it is a relatively short movie but it doesn't always feel like it. All right. uh which is not the end of the world it's not the end of the world and if they, indeed that's a decision that they made for the film i think that there's a downside to it and sometimes i was a little distracted by that uh and then finally morbius which is of course the best movie of the year I mean, uh, I mean, it already won Best Picture. It Academy won Awards, Best Picture yeah. of the Academy Awards. As we, just uh, uh, just yeah. a couple of weeks ago, Morbius won Best Picture. So yeah. congratulations to Morbius. Yeah. Morbius, in fact, they actually said it won next year too, just in case we missed it. Mm. Uh, no, Morbius is not very good. <laughs> Morbius is a C minus. It's the first movie to win two Best Pictures. <laughs> <laughs> Morbius is not a very good film. No, Morbius, Morbius is, a, is, a, is quite bad. It yeah. is a C minus. It, it's not the worst superhero movie ever made, but it's not interesting enough to be the worst superhero no. movie ever made. It's just. A generic studio product film where mm. really no one brought anything particularly interesting to the project, either the actors, or the directors, the or, writers, or just anything like a really. Slick production values yeah. missing. It so. just it just feels like they they had an opportunity to do something. They could have done something interesting. They chose not to this time, yeah. and as a result, you've got a not interesting movie with a lot of really bad elements to it that are extra distracting because there's nothing genuine or exciting to latch onto to make you overlook those quibbles. So yeah, it's a bad film. It's big old C minus from, from both of us. Um, and that is it for critically acclaimed. We'll be back next week with reviews of other stuff. There's a new Michael Bay film coming out next oh, week. Yeah. 
Ah. Um, it should be called ambulance backwards because I think that's Echnoluma. Um, yeah, but that's because that's how ambulances look in the front. But it said it's called an ambulance. Yeah, yeah it's about, about people in an ambulance. Um, I, uh, here, here, it's here, a here's... horror story about finding out how much it costs to get an ambulance because <laughs> <laughs> I've had to be taken away in an ambulance once after a car accident. If, if it's it like, shocking how much it costs. Wouldn't it be great if if like the first like. 20 minutes of the movie was like Michael Bay action and the rest is like an Ascar Farhadi movie where they're just sort of like fighting to pay bills and stuff. Oh my god, I would love that. That would be an amazing Bad Boys 4. (laughs) Where it's just like the first opening action sequence and the rest of it is just doing the paperwork, going once again, over and over again to therapy Mm. and all of the and and, uh, having to like relitigate everything that happened. Wait a minute, last time you said you came in through that door, Mm. this isn't tracking anymore. (laughs) I don't even remember anymore. What is life? What is reality? I would love that. I would love that. Um, That's a great idea for a movie. A l- little bit of uh, insider baseball. Uh, I, I work for a, an outlet called Slash Film. Uh, I was uh, set to interview Michael Bay for oh. the, for, uh, for Ambulance. And, um, Didn't just, work out? Well, because of like some scheduling problems and some emails that weren't sent, uh, that fell through. Oh, that's a bummer. So I will not be talking to Michael Bay. Uh, oh, I would have that, loved that to That is a pity because I really wanted to talk to Michael There's Bay. There's so many interesting things. You in particular, I think, would have <laughs> because, asked Because I actually kind of loathe Michael Bay as a filmmaker. I'm, I might be a fine yeah. uh, person. And I love his cameo in Mystery Men. But uh, he uh, he doesn't make movies that like. Oh, Sonic uh, the Hedgehog 2 comes out next week, too. I forgot about that. We'll oh, of course. Yeah. How could I forget Sonic the Hedgehog 2? The, 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 hmm. the, the answering all the, unknown, all the unknowns, all those questions you had from Sonic Finally. the Hedgehog. Yeah. Uh, this time they don't have to reanimate anyway. Uh, well, they had to redesign and reanimate the first film after the preview of the first one. Well, came at least out there's people that. Didn't like the design of a Sonic the Hedgehog. Uh, but anyway, that's it for uh, critically acclaimed this week. Thank you everybody for listening. Thank you everybody for joining us on our journey as we review films. Uh, don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. Uh, we also have a Patreon, patreoncom network where we have a lot of exclusive shows, including our shows Only the Best. We review every single nominee for Best Picture. We're going to record an episode of that this week. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have uh, our show All Our Yesterdays. We're reviewing every single episode of Star Trek in order. We're getting to about the halfway mark of season two of Star Trek The Next Generation, mm-hmm. which means we have well over 100 episodes in the can of that. So if you it, sign up, it, you have a lot of shows. We're also out. coming up on Star Trek V The Final Frontier, oh, which was made exciting. during the production of Season 2 of Next Generation. Also exciting. Uh, I, I almost forgot that that was coming mm-hmm. up, so that'll be fun. We get to go back to the original cast for a little bit. Um, so yeah, we got that going on. Uh, and a bunch of other stuff besides. We have online hangouts. Um, cool stuff over there at the Patreon. Thank you to all of our patrons, without whom we would not exist. So if you can uh, afford to help out, we do appreciate it. And if not, we totally get it. Life is really hard right now. Um, so there's that. We're also, if you want to uh, talk about anything we discussed on this podcast, maybe you want to discuss Morbius, or maybe you want to discuss Apollo 10 and a half, or maybe you want to discuss anything at all, really. You want to correct us, ask us questions about the industry, or look, movie recommendations, anything you want. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We might read your email in an upcoming episode of We've Got Mail or other podcasts here at this network. Uh, Whitney, what is our snail mail address for those who prefer to write letters, which we love to read on the air? If you just want to send us a letter, uh, send it to the the Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. Yeah. Um, And, of course, we're on Twitter, at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. Uh, We have some cool new soaps over at the Salt Cat Soap Etsy store. 
Uh, if you want to check that out, Salt Cat Soap is on uh, Twitter and Instagram and Facebook at Salt Cat Soap. Uh, and uh, yeah, for uh, April, we've got some lovely new spring stuff. We've got uh, this soap is lilacs, and it's a lilac soap. And we also have a lawn weekend soap, uh, which smells like fresh cut grass, and it is incredibly just um, what's it looking for? Enervating. And enervating means to rob of energy. Oh, then the opposite of enervating. Yeah, reenervating. Actually, I actually have to pause and give credit to B. Peterson for pointing that out to me because I had been misusing the word enervating for years. Yeah, I think it's one of those. I, co- I had, it like, sounds like energizing, right? So yeah. I would say enervating. I think I, like was a little bit more, but you look up the definition yeah. it means the opposite. It means so, to drain of power. Sometimes like inflammable is another one of those where it's mm. like that shouldn't mean flammable, but it actually does, and mm. it's really weird. Uh, so I apologize for that. But our long weekend stuff smells like fresh cut grass, and it is just the perfect springtime scent for me. I really love it. Mm. Love having that smell around the house right now, and those are all available to you over at Soul Cat Soap, our Etsy store. Thank you, everybody, who's already made a purchase. It's very, very kind of you. The reviews have been really, really great. So this means a lot to us. So thank you for that. And um, I guess that's it. That's it. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And never forget, everyone is a critic. I want to go to the midnight show. I'm sorry, what? <laughs>